Amen. Well, greetings in Jesus' name. Amen. To all the people on the balcony. Uh, I want to place on record my sincere thanks to Gordon uh, for this opportunity to share the word of the Lord and the burden of the Lord uh, to this august group of people. Also, I want to place on record my thanks to my father in the faith, Apostle Tamon Aidu, who sent us here with his blessing. And uh, he sends his greetings. I was with him uh, yesterday and the day before. He sends his greetings. He's busy concluding a conference in Port Chepston on the South Coast as we speak. And so it's important to say these things because we are here under authority. And we don't come as loose cannons doing our own thing. But we are sent and we are accountable to those who send us. So it's my great joy to be in the company of my brothers in Christ and for, the, for Gordon and others, the group that is with him who manage this particular platform, uh, I want to again say thank you so much for your love in the Spirit. Amen. These are not just brothers, but as John says, they are brothers, but they are brothers that are with you in tribulation. Yeah. Then you know who is your brother. There's those that are with me in my tribulations. Jesus said to his disciples, you were with me through all my sufferings. Paul said to Timothy, do not be ashamed of my sufferings. And so it's important to stay the course. Tell someone, stay the course. Right? It's through thick and thin that we are loyal. It's through thick and thin that we are. We are faithful in the good times and in, and in the bad times. Amen? And so I bring you greetings too from my wife. Uh, Renee, uh, she's back home with our daughter and our last son, and he will not be given to Cape Town, <laughs> as these two have been. He has his eyes set on the United States of America, but you know, many are the plans in a man's heart, but the Lord's purposes prevail. Well, I send you greetings from uh, Renee, and as well as from my local household of Faith Gate Ministries, Durban Central, in the city of Durban. Amen. Let's pray. Loving Father, we thank you that we are able to share your word. I thank you that your word is eternal, your word is enduring, your word will never pass away. Heaven and earth passes away, but not your word, not your principles, not your eternal dynamics by which you have chosen to live and for us to live by. We thank you that you and your word are one. And that your word is sharp, it's quick, it's powerful, it is spirit, it is life, it's a lamp and a light. And I ask, O oh God, that it would light our path today, it would ignite our spirit. Holy Spirit, you are the greatest teacher. You lead into paths of truth and of righteousness for your own name's sake. We bless you, God, that we are able to sit under and hear the perfect law of liberty that is able to set us free. I pray, O oh God, that your word will find place within us, that we would hide it in our hearts, that we would not transgress your principles or your law. So I ask, O oh God, that teach us according to your word. Let your word have preeminence today. We lay aside our opinions, we lay aside our subjective thinkings, and we want to bow. We divest ourselves of any preconceived notions, and we ask you humbly, Holy Ghost, 
Give to us light. I ask a spirit of understanding, spirit of enlightenment and revelation would grip every heart. I break the blur, I remove the darkness in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I ask that as this word comes, let its entrance bring light and understanding. Let it throw open things that are somehow blocked. Let it remove impasses and cul-de-sacs and break through areas that you want your church to walk in. I thank you for the power of your word. Let your word be glorified as it was in the day of Acts. Let the word of God grow and spread and be glorified within your church. For I ask this in Jesus' name. Thank you, loving Father. Amen. 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 Well, there's a myriad of thoughts on my heart to share with you this morning. And I think we have two sessions. And uh, I think our sessions here would be largely highly prophetic in nature. And I just want to be faithful to share that which God has laid upon my own heart. Much of what I would share, I would share with you from revelation from the scriptures and also my personal experiences in the same as I journeyed in Christ. The season that we are presently living in is called the apostolic by many people, the apostolic season. Some refer to it as the apostolic reformation. It is beyond dispute now that we are in a new season. It's becoming commonplace and widely believed that there's a new era in the global church. It has broken upon us more than two decades ago, but it's coming into full formation in the current time. And I'm so glad to be a part of it. I'm so glad to have recognized it and to have journeyed in it. And it's the most exciting thing to enter it now. It's the most exciting thing to, to enter into its fullness in the current time in which we live. Because God has really um, brought accuracy even to the season that He has initiated. How many people know that sometimes when God initiates something, man's administration of what God has initiated can misrepresent God's intent? And sometimes the administration of something God ordained leaves a bad taste in the palate of people. And what they tend to do is to distance themselves from that which God has ordained simply because of maladministration of the season. Now we are called not just to administrate or father people. We are also called to administrate and father seasons. Not everybody, but authentic apostles are Biblically and scripturally required to administrate an epoch in God, right? Uh, a particular phase or an era in Christ. And I think order, everyone say order. Biblical order is coming back to what God has originally intended for the present time, okay? And so I want to encourage anybody that has been discouraged thus far with the way things have gone over the past 20 years particularly within South Africa, relative to the apostolic. These are great days, and now you don't want to stand away from what God has initiated. To make a mistake in this time and to divorce yourself from the current speakings of God is to be marginalized and rendered to the fringes, whether as you should be in the center of what God desires to do. This is a great season of the visitation of the Lord. 
And you have to know your day of visitation. Cape Town plays a highly strategic role in the way things will pan out, I believe, within South Africa and within the global arena. This city has a critical role to play. And I think it will be vital for setting standards, establishing protocols that will be imported to the rest of the world. But to whom much is given, much is required. And when you have such mandates in God, there comes with it a great expectation from God a different requirement to those who are are set to become the standard. To those to whom much is given, much is required. Jesus would often say to his disciples, how long have I been with you? And he would, he would express frustration with his disciples. He said, oh, you of little faith. How long have I been with you? That frustration is not a, a frustration in the soul, but it was a spirit expectation that by a certain time, you should have been operating at a certain level by virtue of what you've been exposed to. right? And it, it's incumbent upon us Every time we traverse through a particular milestone in journeying in God, that we stop and we review and we assess, are we exhibiting fruit commensurate with what we have been receiving? Right? Or are we functioning less than or a, a standard below the grace that has been allocated or allotted to us? And I'm saying this to the church in Cape Town. Um, God, in his eternal plan and purposes, has earmarked this city to offload much to you. And to receive it is a privilege. But with, comes, with privilege comes responsibility. Nobody can have a privileged position like firstborn. If you're the firstborn in a family, you don't want the position without manifesting the profile. And with that profile comes the execution of purpose. Everyone say position. position. Say profile. profile. Say purpose. purpose. So people love positions. But with every position there comes a profile or particular nature or character that the position demands you should exhibit. But when you do that, only then can you efficiently manifest the purpose for which you are called. And I want to encourage the church in, in Cape Town. This is a season of, of your visitation of the Lord. I say that to you prophetically. God is going to visit you, and he has been already, in some of the most profound ways that you have not yet experienced. It's almost like he is your best kept, he's, you are his best kept secret. <laughs> it's like he leaves the best wine for last. And you people know what wine is. <laughs> You have a lot of wineries here. First the natural, then the spiritual. I don't think it's coincidental that this, this region is known for producing some of the best wines globally. I'm saying that as I'm hearing, I don't plan these things. I want to encourage you. There's a new wine that this particular jurisdiction in Christ is going to bring forth that's going to cause joy in the house of God globally. Because when the wine runs out, the joy runs out. But there's a church that will bring forth truth in a particular dynamic 
that's going to restore contentment and joy to the global church. Amen? So you are in the right place at the right time for the right purpose. Amen? I feel like immigrating now. <laughs> Maybe I should move to Cape Town. <laughs> but the Lord has placed me in Durban, and I haven't heard him say move yet. Amen. <laughs> Hallelujah. The issue of spiritual fathering and sonship is very close to my heart. And I want to speak on matters relative to that. It is now commonly held that every son of God needs oversight by somebody. To operate without oversight is to operate without spiritual covering. Spiritual covering as a theme or an issue is a separate topic altogether. But it, it is high, of high priority that everyone comes into an active father-son relationship. And I use the term deliberately, active and functional. Because many people can identify a spiritual father, but it's not a functional thing. Many people simply want, to, want the label for, for political correctness, or they want to point to someone that is over them in Christ for acceptance by others. But in terms of the, the active functionality of the relationship, it's active, it's, in, it's, it's absent from what I've seen in my travels globally in many regions in the earth. Now, everyone say the will of God. I'm going to talk to you maybe in the next session about how that relationship, a father-son dyad, or father-son dynamic, we can call it the father-son wineskin, whatever label you want to call it, that relationship is absolutely vital for the distribution of the grace of God to accomplish the will of God. Repeat after me. Father-son father is, is essential for grace distribution and for the accomplishment of the will of God. Now, if you focus on the end, which is the will of God, his will must be done. But he requires certain conduits. He requires certain structures to be in place for the will to be, for the will to be done. Now, unless your passion is, thy will be done. As it is in heaven, so let it be done on, on earth. You will then not sometimes pursue the protocols or structures that God has set in place for that will to be done. It's not the means that you idolize. It's what the means are intended to accomplish. It's the end. Every means are intended to accomplish an end. So, yes, you must employ the means but focus on the end. Otherwise, while engaging the means, if you don't have the end in view, you become embroiled in the means without accomplishing anything. So many people, and I'm talking to leaders primarily, because if you are a leader of a congregation, you are an elder, a spiritual father over the souls of those that you lead. But you yourself too need to be fathered by another, and you need to exhibit sonship in reference to the other as a model to your own sons whom you father. So you can never ever speak outside of showcasing yourself 
as the example for every principle you want your sons to exhibit toward you. As you sow upward to the one over you, so will you reap from those under you toward you. Right? That's how it works. You can preach all you want to, but unless you model it before your sons, the impact and the power of the grace imparted will be minimal. Most times, what they need is not a Bible study, they need a case study. And you are the case study. So you can never ever preach beyond what you model to your, to your people. Most things, are, they say, are caught, not taught. And you, you teach or you model by your specific example and by, and by your lifestyle. Every father over a local congregation must have a father over him that is either an apostle or at least related to or connected to an authentic apostolic fathering grace. Okay? I'm not an apostle, I know that. I'm a teacher. The gift of Christ in me is teaching. Okay? You must know where you are called in Christ and stay within those limits. Don't venture beyond your grace configuration because then you start to engage in realms of warfare that the grace does not warrant you to experience. Okay? Tell your neighbor, stay within your allotment. I find if I stay within teaching, I have the greatest success. The moment I attempt to venture out of that, yes, and let me just say, when, when situations demand a particular grace gifting, God stands in me, and we can operate apostolically, evangelistically, pastorally, or whichever. But there's a primary grace configuration that everybody should remain faithful to. Amen? I lead other congregations globally. I father them in Christ. Right? in a few places in the earth and in South Africa. Now, I, f I provide oversight to a leader who is leading another congregation, but I'm no apostle, but I, I do have a connection to an authentic ap an apostle in the person of Pastor Tham, and I do, to whom I am sub submitted. And people, listen carefully. When you understand father-son dynamics... It's not just that you have a father. Every father somehow, somewhere should be connected to an authentic apostle. Right? An authentic apostolic grace. And just before I get into my teaching, that dynamic is critical for total and efficient grace transfer to the sons that you are leading locally on the ground. Okay? So Paul in, in the book of Acts would meet John's disciples and says to them, have you received the Holy Ghost? They says, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Ghost. With what baptism were you baptized? They said, with the baptism of, of John. He said, well, did John speak to you about baptism? But he spake of one coming after him, will baptize you with the, the Holy Ghost. They believe in Jesus. He prays for them. They fill with the Holy Ghost. They speak in other, speak in other tongues. He takes the Messiah to the synagogue, and in three months, he begins to do what? Teach them doctrine. Everyone say doctrine. doctrine. Right? He was opposed in there, in the synagogue. So he takes the Messiah to the school of Tyrannus. And there, from anywhere between two and a half to three years, 
Every day, everyone say every day, because that's what the Bible says. Every day he taught them doctrine, persuading them about the kingdom of God. Now, who would like to be under Paul's tutelage for three years every day? Right? He has an apostle. Listen carefully. He's in the city of Ephesus. If cities are, if cities are to be changed, they are changed by apostolic doctrine. Doctrine developed by apostles. It is an apostle's preserve to establish doctrine. Right? I was listening to an inaccurate song the other day. Well known globally and singing. I thought, wow, how so inaccurate. And I was about to put a post on Facebook, but I, I retracted. <laughs> the post I was going to put is this. Songwriters don't establish doctrine. Apostles do. Every songwriter needs to be connected to an authentic apostle that can establish truth. Songs, therefore, should be birthed from truth established by legitimate apostles in the earth. Okay? And so, um, you have to be, Paul would teach these for three years. And by the time, at the end of the three years, these apostles of John, who only knew the baptism of John, have been upgraded into the current speakings of the Lord. Tell your neighbor, be upgraded. So you can stay in a particular realm, only knowing a particular ceiling to the truth revealed to you. They only knew the baptism of John. But they needed an authentic apostolic voice to yank them out of the limitations of the doctrine they knew into what God was currently saying. Right? And the Bible says... He taught them diligently for three years. And you know what? When he left them and he knelt by the ship and they wept, because he said to them, you will never see my face again. And, and there was great emotions. On his departure, he said to them, this is Acts 20, Ramad verse 35, he said, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace that is able to build you up and give you an inheritance amongst all the saints that are sanctified. And then he says this, I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. By the space of three years, he says, I offloaded to you the whole counsel of God. Paul was saying, everything I knew, everything revealed to me, I've imparted to you. By that time, there are elders in the city of Ephesus. Right? The significant upgrade for this group. They are elders in a city. Now, eldership is fatherly. Nobody can be an elder without embracing a strong fatherly disposition. When I stand over my congregation, like tomorrow morning, and I preach, I'm not standing as Randolph the teacher. I'm not standing predominantly in my fivefold grace office. I'm standing as Randolph, a spiritual father, an elder over the souls of people that I'm responsible for in Christ. So I'm not autocratic. I'm not high-handed. I'm fatherly. I'm tender. I'm loving. I'm nurturing people in, in Christ. So I don't have time to get into eldership now. The doctrine of eldership is a critical thing. But an elder is a father over a congregation of people. And he rules together with other elders alongside him. 
but is responsible for the souls of people. So when Paul engages these elders, he engages them as responsible for the souls of those that he has led. And he leaves them. But he doesn't leave them with no covering. He writes to Timothy in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. He says to Timothy, I have left you in Ephesus. Right? So Timothy is an apostolic delegate sent by Paul the Apostle when he could not be literally in a city. Timothy would, on behalf of Paul, provide apostolic covering to a whole group of elders leading congregations in the city. My point is this. Every father, every elder then, leading a, con- leading a congregation in the city of Ephesus was plugged in via Timothy to Paul to the grace of God in Paul. No elder in the city could do his own thing. But he was vitally connected to an authentic apostolic grace in Paul. And did not Paul overthrow Diana of the Ephesians? Hmm? Who was the reigning goddess in, in Ephesus? Diana of the Ephesians, not so? When Paul went to Ephesus, did he do warfare as we traditionally know it? He didn't call a global prayer meeting in the stadium in Ephesus. What he did was teach doctrine. Why is it so quiet in Cape Town? Listen carefully. There's a methodology for overthrowing principalities in a city. And Paul knew the secret. He said, I have to establish, listen carefully, speak to you by revelation. I have to establish Elders who are fathers over congregations. Those elders will have to be schooled in doctrine. In a very rigorous, in a very focused manner. I will take breaking the ceiling of doctrinal limits that they knew only the baptism of John. I will upgrade them and that will require of them personal devotion to be submitted to the apostolic grace in me. I would labor in doctrine with these guys. They emerge as elders over congregations in a city. And they would, in fact, continue what I've given to them to others. Do you remember the scripture? What did Paul say to Timothy? The things that you heard from me, my son, in the presence of many witnesses. Those same things commit to who? To faithful men. One of the requirements of an elder, he must be faithful. The same commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. In the city of Ephesus, you'll find this pattern. From Christ, grace and revelation was given to Paul. Paul offloaded it to Timothy, sent Timothy there to give oversight to elders who led congregations. So everyone say apostolic grace. I want, to, I want to, apostolic grace is a key topic. You see, it's not just any grace you need. You need the grace of an apostle as a foundational grace within, your, within your, your Christian life to mature you in the things of God. Yeah? Apostles are foundational. Tell someone apostles are foundational. Right? The church is built upon the foundation of? Apostles and prophets, Ephesians 2.20. Yeah? 
right? So anything apostolic is something bedrock, it's something foundational. What is the most important part of a building? It's foundations. Remember when Paul came to Corinth, he said to them, according to the grace of God given to me, I as a wise, everyone say master builder. Now master builders build according to pattern. They don't do their own thing. They build according to design. Paul is saying, in my apostleship, by grace, I am a wise master builder. And I've laid the foundation. He did not say, I am the foundation. He said, I have laid the foundation, for no other foundation can any man lay than that which is all already laid, which is who? Christ Jesus. So when I, when I say apostles are foundational, they are focused on laying the foundation of Christ. They don't become the foundation. They are Christ-centered, Christ-focused. If it doesn't look like Christ, they'll break the building down and restart. They are Christ-centered, Christ-focused, Christ-centric. They love Jesus. They love Christ. True apostles do. So, listen carefully. If you've established the foundations of a particular building, its parameters set out and prescribed, can you as a builder elect to after the foundations have been set to build beyond the foundation? If they lay the concrete and it's there, can you say, no, I don't want to lay the first course of bricks here. I will lay it outside, just beyond the foundation. Can't. If apostles together with the prophetic are foundational, Paul then says, whoever comes after me must take heed how he builds. Yeah, that's what he said. Apollos has come after me to Corinth. Paul spent 18 months in Corinth. Apollos came after him and built Paul gives words of caution to Apollos and to Peter. Two apostles, three apostles that had significant influence in Corinth. Peter, Apollos, and, and Paul. Paul was foundational. But he said, the others that have come after me must take heed how they build. For no man can lay any other foundation than that which is already laid, which is Christ. So it's proof, listen carefully, that the other four of the fivefold ministry... Prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers must build according to the pattern set by apostles. Apostles are foundational. They set the course. Any true prophet must be linked to the, apost the apostle. Any true evangelist must have an apostolic mindset in how he builds. Any true pastor must be apostolically wide as well. Because the foundation has been established and the foundation is doctrine. It's Christ-centered doctrine. Amen? Apostles, establish your belief system. How on earth are we going to dismantle principalities in Cape Town? Why was Paul successful in Ephesus? And he only needed three years. Paul came to Cape Town and said, you guys are taking too long. I need three years and I'll sort things out. <laughs> All he did was, let's get elders, key elders over the city. People responsible for households ensure that they are connected to not just any apostle. Let me just say this. The title is being loosely used today. I travel extensively, especially in Central and Eastern Africa. There, it's like a free-for-all. <laughs> so, warfare for, not, for which 
you are not equipped to deal with. Yeah, so don't, don't go into unnecessary battles. Amen. Amen. To dismantle a principality in a region, all you have to do is change the principles by which that principality needs to ensure its authority in the region. To, to render Diana of the Ephesians impotent in her effect over the whole city of Ephesus, all Paul did, he changed principles which change the behavior of people in the city through doctrine, through grace impartation. And when Diana of the Ephesians, her principles were eroded, supplanted by principles of the kingdom of God, fleshed out in the lives of ordinary believers through the work of an authentic apostle imparting grace to elders who were leaders over congregations. Diana of the Ephesians had no basis upon which to rule anymore. And in the heavenlies, she was rendered impotent. To change a city, to render it free from a ruling prince over the territory, simply change the principality or the principles by which people live on the ground. And the principality has got no basis for its functionality. But you change the principles, not just by anybody teaching the principles, you see, there's a certain authority vested in an authentic apostle of God. And it's a warfaring thing. It is, you know, apostles, Pastor Tom and I just said recently, do not just have authority to drive out a demon out of a person. They have authority to drive out demons or principalities out of regions. But to, to, to take that out of a region, everyone says structure. Paul had a structure in place. There was an apostle, there was elders, there was congregations. Yeah? There was a, the dynamic of father and son, but accurately joined to an authentic apostle in Christ. Okay? Do you remember the feeding of uh, the 5,000? There were 5,000 men, not counting women and children. For so says the scriptures. The reference to men is a reference to leadership. The reference there to men is a reference to heads of households, not counting their women and, and children. So there could have been in excess of 20,000 people there that day. The text says 5,000 men, but if you view them as heads of households, not counting their wives, their women and children, there could have been in excess of 20,000 people. So it's even more miraculous than what you read. If you do the math, you know. But you see, Jesus is the bread of life, sent down from heaven. He is full of grace and truth. They find a boy with five loaves. Five depicts grace. Bread depicts the word of God. Where is grace vested? In the word of God as the word is broken, so grace will, so grace will flow. That bread and fish is given to Jesus. Oh, by the way, even fish too is representative of grace. And you people in Cape Town, don't worry. I know how you love your fish. <laughs> because Jesus in his resurrected body ate fish. 
How is that for having an immortal body and the first thing on your mind is fish? So there's, there's hope for you guys in Cape Town. <laughs> Beyond the resurrection, you'll still be eating your fish. Snook, what the snook is here? We'll never be out of business even after, after the resurrection. Meet you in Hout Bay in our immortal state. <laughs> he requested fish. For me, that tells me fish symbolically is food for spirits. Food for spirits. In that, it's also an ideal depiction of the grace of God. Because Paul, in three valedictions, a valediction is the way you end a letter. Right? In all of his greetings, yes, he starts, grace to you, grace to you. In all of his valedictions, in every letter, he ended, grace be with you. But in three of them, in the book of Galatians, 2 Timothy, and Philemon, last verses in each book, he says this, grace be with your spirit. Grace be with your spirit. Where's the landing spot for grace? My spirit, not my soul or my body. My spirit needs to be grace enriched. And the spirit in my, the grace in my spirit. That's why Jesus said, the words I speak are what? Are spirit and life. In that word is grace. It comes out as spirit full of grace to land not on your mind. Not on your cognition. But you receive spiritual things on platforms that are compatible with the medium transmitted to you. So things spiritual must land on spirit in you. If the word is full of grace, it must land on a platform in you that is the, the ideal recipient for that grace. So your, your spirit becomes word enriched, full of grace. So when that little boy gave five loaves, five the number of grace, fivefold ministry, bread depiction of the word, Two fish, agreement, but food for spirits. That needed to be disseminated to 20,000 people scattered over a hillside. And I want to say scattered. When Jesus blessed the bread, he infused himself into it. Grace symbolically was infused, right? He gave the following orders before the miracle took place. He said, make all the people sit down. No one's getting any bread and fish until you sit down. Tell someone, sit down. <laughs> you see, we don't read the fine details in that account. We think, wow, what a miracle. Wow, people are hungry. Jesus sorted their need. And by the way, it's not a miracle to supply needs. Jesus, if you read the next chapter, Jesus had a completely different objective in mind in feeding them that fish and loaves. Because in the next chapter, he would say, the people argue that Moses gave them manna. But he would say, but I am the true bread. He said, Moses did not give you manna, but my father. And I am the true bread, which has come down from Heaven, now unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, drink his blood, you then have no life in you. And they all left him. From 20,000 strong, his church whittled down to 12 again. Because everybody left because they couldn't understand the statement. 
They thought he was teaching cannibalism. Eat my flesh. They said, this is a hard saying. But Jesus, he said, you only followed me for the bread and the fish. But you could not see beyond what it represents. I've trained myself. Listen, this is, you can apply this to any miracle. Whenever God does something miraculous, naturally, usually the natural is not the objective he had in mind. But it, that's why it's called a sign. A sign is never the destination. If you're traveling to Durban and you see 300 k's to go to Durban, don't stop by the sign and say, I've arrived. <laughs> Nowhere. If the miracle is a sign, it's not the destination. It points to a greater reality. And people were enthralled. Wow, fish, bread, our needs are met. Listen carefully. If you are need-driven, need-focused, need-centered, you're going to miss the essence, the big picture of what God is trying to communicate to you. Then he said, make the people sit down in groups of 100. Sometimes Luke says groups of, 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 uh, groups of 50. Right? In the, the account in, in John, I think it is. Okay? So, if there's 5,000 heads of households... They're sitting in groups of 50. How many groups do we have? 100, right? 100 times 50 is 5,000 heads of households. So they were, they were seated in a very structured manner, in groups, in allotments. Then Jesus takes the five loaves, depictive of fivefold ministry, that's designed to mature the body of Christ, that's what Ephesians 4 talks about, and he hands the five to 12 apostles, okay? The 12 apostles represent the apostolic. The five loaves of bread represent fivefold ministry, amongst other things, full of grace. The apostolic was given responsibility to manage the five. You've got to see the picture. Apostles manage how fivefold ministry must be disseminated to the masses. Ask your neighbor, can you see? Right? So no, post, no pastor, no evangelist, etc. Even if he's in the hands of Christ, blessed, anointed, called, graced, can just go to the masses without first passing through the apostolic. Passes through there to get configured, to be rightly distributed, to be a blessing to the nations. Right? Now, if you do the maths, how good are you guys in Cape Town at maths? Okay. Uh, <laughs> you only know fish. Hallelujah. When Jesus was asked to pay taxes, which he only did when he was asked to. <laughs> Please don't quote me. <laughs> he said, go get a coin out of a fish's mouth. So the realm of spirit can supply needs even financially. That's another lesson altogether. What were we talking about? You distracted me with your... <laughs> 5,000 heads of households, groups of 50, at least 100 groups, seated, structured, ready to receive grace. So Jesus doesn't go personally. I thought he would have done that. 
wouldn't you, if you were in that group, Jesus must come to your group personally and distribute the bread? No. Jesus puts that grace, that bread, into the apostolic hands. So what he's really saying, if you do not receive the one I sent, you can never receive what I have for you. People want Jesus to come personally to them. But he's always coming to you. You simply have to open your eyes to recognize how is he coming. Because right? he's coming by sending an emissary, an ambassador, one that accurately represents him. It's called an apostle with apostolic grace. Right? And he comes to disseminate that to the group. If you do the maths, there are 12 guys and 100 groups. It'll be easy if there were 10 apostles, right? So each one will go equally to... But it meant some apostles had to go to more groups than, than others. In other words, you are not an apostle to every group. You're only an apostle to the group to which you are sent. No apostle is an apostle generally to the body of Christ. You have that calling, but you're only an apostle to those to whom God has sent you. Paul was an apostle to the Jews. Peter an apostle, sorry, the other way. Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles. Peter an apostle to the, to the Jews. Not so. Both apostles, you'll read this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. Both gentlemen had their greatest successes when they were operative in the spheres to which they were sent. Greatest successes there. When Peter was in Galatia, and he sat with Gentiles, remember? And he heard certain high-ranking Jews were coming down from Jerusalem. For fear of them, what did he do? He left seating, uh, being seated and eating meals with Gentiles. He divorced himself from them. In other words, he was racist. Right? Tell you about Peter was racist. Yeah? An apostle was racist. Noch <laughs> out. He's exhibiting racist tendencies. Sitting and eating meals with Jews, you get an email, a WhatsApp message comes on your phone that certain Jews are coming down to the meeting. You divorce yourself from the Gentiles because you fear the Jews to which you were called as an apostle. But you're in the wrong place, ministering to the wrong people. Listen carefully. Sometimes God doesn't send you to a particular sphere for which you're not ready, because that sphere will unearth in you certain proclivities and tendencies, which when manifest, will tarnish the message that you give to that sphere. When Paul came, what Paul said? Paul said, I would stood him to his face. And Paul publicly rebuked Peter. Right? And Peter says, Paul says, because he was to be Blamed. Do you know how serious Peter's offense was? The Bible says his hypocrisy, courted hypocrisy. In other words, Peter was playing actor. Conviction in his heart. I mean, if anybody would have known that God is no respecter of persons, should have been this guy. Because he was one of the first in the book of Acts, in Acts 10, to be sent to a house of Gentiles. And he even said by his own mouth, now I'm convinced God is 
no respecter of persons. If anybody should have known God loves all people equally, should have been this guy. So he holds an internal truth by conviction in his heart, but his external actions negate it. Many people know what is true internally. And I speak prophetically to some of you here. You are convinced as to what to do. But you are fearing a particular sphere. And you adjust your behavior to accommodate your sphere. In, whereas you should be true to your internal conviction. And face the music. Rather be true to truth than to know what is true and to act contrary to truth to please people. Then an apostle comes to this people and he says, I would stood him to his face because he was to be blamed. Do you know how serious his offense was? Paul says, even Barnabas. Read it. Okay? Your homework for today is to read Galatians chapter 2. I was a high school teacher by profession for 17 years, so I'm in the habit of giving homework. <laughs> Your homework for today is to read Galatians chapter 2. You read the whole chapter. Why was Paul so strong? Why would one apostle rebuke another to the face publicly? You see, Paul wasn't so much attacking Peter the person. Paul was concerned about the representation of the gospel in the province of Galatia, a whole region was going to be affected by the maladministration of this particular apostle's behavior. Sometimes when you are corrected, those who love you correct you not to attack your person, but to correct the principle by which you behave. Because if they leave the principle unattended in a bid to not offend you, they leave the message misrepresented in your sphere. And we do not want the message misrepresented in Cape Town. Amen? Amen. We want structure. We want, we want order. The Bible says even Barnabas. Now when the Bible uses the word even, you know, even in English when you say it was so bad, even this one. The word even says, I mean, it shouldn't happen to that one, but even him. Right? And Paul says, Peter's, King James uses a powerful word. Instead of hypocrisy, King James says, and Peter's dissimulation, or hypocrisy in ASB says, was so strong that even Barnabas, who was Paul's introduction to the early apostles, even Barnabas was swept away with their hypocrisy. You know, when you are swept away, you are swept away. No, it's like, there's no other way to describe it. It's like you... You're standing on the beach. You see those, those clips, movies on Facebook and other platforms. Guys fishing on a beach or people just fishing on a rock. And this unannounced wave. Huge. comes from nowhere. And there's no ability to stand against it. You will be swept away. Peter's hypocrisy was so strong. Paul says, even a strong, credible, upright apostle like Barnabas was swept off his feet with their hypocrisy. Apostles address inaccuracy because they're concerned about the sweeping tide of it that will affect an entire region. And hence they come in with authority, they come in with strong government to correct a particular circumstance. 
Fortunately for Peter, he received the correction. That's what I like about Peter. Peter is your hot-headed apostle, right? I mean, he cuts Roman soldiers' ears off. I always ask, what was he doing carrying a knife for? <laughs> Peter would have made a very good apostle in Cape Town. <laughs> Peter was carrying. You insult my Lord, I take your ear off one time. Peter's your courageous guy. Nobody wants to get out in the water and storm. He says, I will come. If it's you, bid me come, I'm there. Even on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus was transfigured, it says, and Peter answered and said, let's build three boots. But no question was asked. That's what the king, and Peter answered. But there's no, this guy is like another mind, right? So whenever I think of Peter, I think of the fisherman from down the road. He was a fisherman by trade, by the way. Paul is this philosopher, educated, highly schooled, scholastic person, schooled under Gamaliel, one of the greatest teachers. And think about the, great, the, the, the wisdom of God. He takes an unschooled fisherman, makes him an apostle to educated Jews, schooled in the Mosaic tradition. He takes a schooled man like Paul, and he sends him to barbaric Gentiles. Right? <laughs> I mean, if I were God, God, you got this mixed up? Maybe, maybe send Paul to the, to the Jews. I think Peter will do very well with these Gentiles. But you see, it's not about where you are naturally gifted that the grace of God works most efficiently. Grace works most efficiently in the areas in which you are least qualified. If you learn how to access the grace... Even when you feel inept, you feel disqualified in a certain way, if you learn how to access grace, grace will qualify you in areas in which you are disqualified. That's the power of the grace of God. Both these apostles knew this. And when Paul corrected Peter, Peter accepted. How do we know this? Because in his epistle, Peter, in 2 Peter, makes reference to, when he references Paul, he says, Paul, he doesn't say, that guy who publicly rebuked me one day and embarrassed me before the whole church. No, he doesn't say that. He says, Paul, our dearly beloved brother. <laughs> he even says, he speaks things too hard to understand. That's what Peter said. Check it out in the Bible. Peter couldn't comprehend Paul most of the time. He speaks things too hard to understand. Right? But you know what? In Galatians 2, when Barnabas and Pete and Paul came to the province there, it says Peter, James, and John, who were perceived to be pillars amongst the twelve, they perceived in Barnabas and I what? Grace. And they extended to us the right hand of fellowship. A right hand of fellowship got nothing to do with church membership. We use the term, but we're using it in the wrong context. Right hand of fellowship was when three credible pillar apostles looked at Paul and saw, let me just paraphrase, they say this, you were not there. We walked with Christ for three years. You were not there. 
In fact, when Christ resurrected and the church was born on the day of Pentecost, you are our greatest opposition. You persecuted. You killed Stephen. You ordered his death. But we haven't seen you like for 14 years. Paul, after his conversion, went for at least 14 years to the desert of Arabia. He goes into obscurity. They're doing the work in Jerusalem. Now he suddenly comes on the scene and he's brought by Barnabas. And the Bible says, when these three were closest to Christ, saw him, he says, when they saw us, they, perce they perceived in me the grace of God. And they extended to me and Barnabas right hands of fellowship. What they were saying is, although we walked with him, you, Paul, by revelation, know certain aspects of the mystery of Christ. Let me just say this. The mystery of Christ wasn't revealed to any other apostle except to Paul. The mystery of godliness to Paul. The mystery of the church, the body of Christ to Paul. You would expect it to have at least John got some wind of these things. Because his head was always on Jesus's. Yeah. But no, God said, there are things that I will reveal to whom I want to reveal them. And if you want to know them, you, can you cannot participate in them until you extend your right hand and you fellowship, you partake of the grace given to that apostle. Okay? And so this, this, this happens. So Paul, let me know how much time I have. There's no, nothing there, so it's an endless session. Oh, or right at the back. Okay. I'm looking at the wrong. I thought this is an eternal session. <laughs> so Paul, Peter becomes the recipient of grace vested in Paul. It's an amazing thing. So the grace of God is disseminated to, from Jesus, to 12 apostles, five loaves, two fish. Those apostles go to certain households to which they are sent. And so the grace of God is imparted via, apostolically, via a particular structure. If you are a head of a household, you had to find the apostle that to whom was sent to your group to receive the grace of God that Christ vested in that bread. If you don't, Know your apostle to whom God has allocated to your house. It is of extreme priority to establish that fact. Otherwise, principalities in whole regions will not be decapitated. It's very, very essential. If you look at how manna was distributed in the Old Covenant, Moses... Uh, in the morning when the manna came, not everybody could just go out of their households and get the manna. The order was this. There was a cloud, and the manna fell only where the cloud was. Hmm? There was a leader authorized to lead people by God. His name was Moses. He's an apostolic type. In the morning when the manna fell, the manna fell not just anywhere. God says specifically, when you wake up in the morning, where must you look or to what must you look? He said, look for dew. You got up in the morning, you just didn't see manna. God said, no, don't look for manna. 
Look for where the dew is, and the mana will be under the dew. Yeah? What is dew? According to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 1 and 2, it says this, Let my teaching fall like rain, and let my speech distill like dew. So where is mana? Mana is a depiction of grace. Not so? It symbolically represents grace. If you want grace for your household, what must you look for? Dew which speaks of the speakings of the Lord. So if you find the word of God, you find the speakings of the Lord, you find grace for your household. It's the rhema speakings, by the way. Because in that passage, it says, let my doctrine fall like rain, but my speech, my imbra in the Hebrew, my specific speakings will be due. Rain the logos, specific speakings, the rhema. Under the rhema, you'll find the, the grace that will nourish your household for the journey ahead. You see, they had to eat to journey. If you're going to go places towards your Canaan, towards your destination in God, you have to be fueled by grace. But how to access that grace works like this. No household in the morning to when they woke up could simply go out and collect the grace. God was very specific. God said only the heads of households go out. So the head of the family would stand at his door and he would go. He would go out and the Bible says collect as much manna as his household needs. And the household needs for manna differ from house to house. So you will get the quantum of grace that your house has got the capacity to consume. Right? Now, you can say, no, I want Moses to come personally and deliver the grace to my house. Moses said, I'm not coming to anybody's house. I will lead you to where the cloud is. That's all I want to do. Your head of your house must be faithful to stand at his door every day and direct his eyes to the speakings of the Lord. From authentic apostles, and there he will find enough grace fit for his household. In that economy, the grace of God will find its way to you. The grace of God will find its distribution toward you. Okay? And it's going to, it's going to marvelously upgrade everything you do privately and personally. Now, I haven't got to my message yet. Is that 12 minutes left? Or how is that? Oh, it's counting down. Okay. Tell your neighbor we've got 12 minutes left. <laughs> now I want to demonstrate why this is so important. Why is it so important? My life personally has been drastically enriched, encouraged, ennobled. Um, I would never be at this place in God if I did not find myself within a structure like that. I'm an elder of a local church, spiritual father over people. I father other congregations globally, but I myself too, I'm not an apostle, but I'm connected to one. To, I find grace given to him. Ephesians 3, if you can put it up on the board, in ASB, Ephesians 3 verse 2, Paul says, undoubtedly, you have heard of the Grace of God given to 
me, for if indeed you have heard of the grace of God, or the stewardship of the grace of God, which was given to me for? What is Paul saying to the whole church at Ephesus? He's still writing to the Ephesians here. He's saying, this whole city, you know, New Testament letters were written not to local churches, but to city. Every local church in the city. In other words, there existed a structure in every city to receive one message from God. If God speaks to Cape Town, who does he send the letter to? Is sufficient structures present for the dissemination of an authentic word from God to be disseminated to the entire city? Okay? Now that's a discussion for another time. But Paul had the ability to disseminate doctrine to an entire church in one city made up of various local households. Right? He had that capacity by virtue of how the church was organized. There are two issues that plague the church presently. Division and disorganization. And the one fuels the other. Because we are divided, therefore we are disorganized. But God is bringing oneness back. You're going to see in the next few years. And the capacity for him to speak singularly to whole cities is going to come back to his biblical order. I long for those days. How about you? Say, God, our fragmentation... Right now is our greatest limitation. And people don't see the, the, the requirement of oneness as something to be pursued. Because you don't know the value of the thing. That's why the Bible says, behold. Tell you never behold. Psalm 133. It says, look. It's got an exclamation mark there. It's not like, behold. It's behold. How good. And how? pleasant it is. The thing that you cannot behold, you will never hold. If you cannot see the thing for what it does and for the possibilities attendant with it, you will never prioritize it within your life. Amen? So we're seeking oneness at all costs. But Paul made a statement here. He said in Ephesians 3 verse 2, the grace of God Undoubtedly, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of the grace of God or God's grace, Paul wasn't egotistical when he said this. He was a man of great conviction. He was just being truthful. All he was saying is, there's a quantum and quality of grace present in me right now that the whole city needs. I have been authorized by Christ to steward this grace. Not so? The word stewardship here is the Greek phrase oikonomia. Everyone say oikonomia. Just put the King James or New King James up. Those versions use a different word for the same concept, but stewardship and uh, in the King James, dispensation mean exactly the same thing. The same Greek word oikonomia and don't think here of dispensation as an error of time. Not time dispensation. Dispensation as in giving out something. To dispense, to distribute. When you are sick, you go to the doctor, he gives you a prescription. You go to a dispensary, a pharmacy. And the pharmacist dispenses the required medicine you need to solve your issues. Apostles... God, medical grace to dispense to the body of Christ to sort out their issues. 
But if you neglect the dispensary, the apostle, you will not have the required grace to live successfully in life or to do church successfully. Okay? Oikonomia is made up of two words, oikos and nomos. Right? Oikonomia, oikos and nomos. Oikos refers to household or family. Right? The term house or household, 99.9% of the time in the New Testament, is the Greek phrase or word oikos. Its Hebrew equivalent in the Old Testament is bayith. Bayith, B-A-Y-I-T-H, Bayith. Both Bayith, Old Testament, and Oikos, New Testament, mean the same thing. It does not allude to the structure. It's not house as in physical structure. It alludes to the quality of relationships that exist in the structure. So you can have a house, but not a home. The church is the house of God. House Oikos alludes to the quality of relationships in the house and specifically a house with a certain structure headed by a father with sons. Okay? That's oikos. Nomos refers to law. Nomos, law. Like you get the book of Deuteronomy, made up of deuter and nomos. Deuter means again, nomos law, the whole book of Deuteronomy is a revision of the law again, the law the second time. So nomos is the law or principles from God's word. Law, they doesn't refer to the Ten Commandments, but to the whole compendium of principles governing the word of God. So to put the two concepts together, oikonomia from oikosan nomos, it means the way that the word of God is disseminated to people, can only be through a certain structure in the house of God, and that structure is a father leading sons. In that economy, the grace of God finds its most efficient dispensation, or the giving out of the grace of God. To neglect that is to neglect the grace designed to mature you. Okay? And so I want to encourage nobody to forfeit that privilege or forfeit that, that opportunity. Do you know Lot's mistake? And there are a lot of Lots in the kingdom. <laughs> There's a lot of them. Lot's mistake is that he failed to see what Abram represented. Abram means high father, not so? Exalted father. Lot means wrapping or veiled. So Lot is blind. Lot got no prophetic perception. Lot cannot see what's right in front of him. He has a high father, Abram. He has a blind Lot. Cannot see what God has positioned right in front of him. What does he do? He allows a little squabble between the herdsmen to be the point of departure and disconnection from them, from Abram. And where does he go to? He positions his tent towards Sodom, not so? Positions his tent towards Sodom. Abram's name is changed to Abraham four chapters later in Genesis 17. And the name change 
is the inclusion of the fifth letter of the alphabet when it's changed in its Hebrew framing. To change Abram to Abraham, for us in English is the addition of an A and an H. To change it in its original Hebrew lettering is simply the addition of the fifth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And five is a depiction of grace. So the name change to Abraham, God was inserting new grace in the man. From Abraham, from Abraham to Abraham. Abraham means high father. Abraham means father of a multitude or father of nations, right? My point is this. Lot disconnects from Abraham when Abraham is Abraham. And he does not experience Abraham as Abraham. Because of a premature departure from one in whom was God's will that he would infuse greater grace like he did with the Apostle Paul. Why? Because he was blind. May the Lord remove your blindness to see which apostle, which fathering grace he sent to you to, to help you in life, to represent the Christ accurately in your world and to be a candidate to fulfill God's purpose, which I'll talk about in the next session. Right? Do you know what the root meaning of Lot is? The etymology, right? And it's, 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 it's Genesis. Lot means myrrh. And you know what myrrh is depicted of? Bitterness. Bitterness blinded him to what was right in front of him. That's why Hebrews 12 verse 15 says, Beware, lest see to it that a root of bitterness suddenly springs up, causes many people to be defiled, and you come short of what? You come short of the grace. If there's anything that will make you fall short of grace right in front of you, is when you hold unforgiveness, bitterness from a prior battle that you have not resolved. In fact, it wasn't even you and Abram. It's his herdsman and your herdsman quabbling. But you took upon the cudgels of a fight that wasn't yours in the first place. Now you are bitter and you cannot see what's right in front of you to benefit you. So you easily disconnect you see, Peter, James, and John saw Paul, and they perceived. They did not hold Paul's history against him as a killer of Christians. Sometimes when you have an archaic, outdated, and obsolete view of someone who has in the meantime transformed, you hold the person's history against them. Yet the person's full of grace meant to benefit you now. And I say that prophetically to some people. You know, this, is, this whole session has been prophetic. I'm saying to you, brethren, if there's any leader sitting here with unresolved issues, forgive now in the name of the Lord Jesus. I say this to you not as, as, a, as a suggestion. Relational hurt in the past is going to blind you to your prophetic future. And the grace of God, even vested in valid apostles, will not find its way to you because of the myrrh still present within you. And then you're going to position your tent towards Sodom, an inaccurate location. Sodom that suffers 
the conquest of Chedaloma and his Persian allies. Remember? They conquered five cities, including Sodom and Gomorrah, taking everybody captive. Only two cities, by the way, Chedaloma could not touch. Jerusalem and Hebron. Who was in Jerusalem? Melchizedek, king of Salem. Who was in Hebron? Abram. Melchizedek was Abraham's spiritual father. In that relationship, there was safety, there was immunity, there was divine protection. Lot left that to position himself in Sodom. And the Bible says his righteous soul, a righteous man, his righteous soul was vexed by the things he heard and, and saw. Amen. I pray that will not be anybody's portion. Amen. There are great days ahead. I want to reiterate. For Cape Town, great days ahead. I'm booking flights now. To cop off. Cop two. <laughs> Get my language right here. The other day I was in Charles's church last few years ago and I was trying to illustrate the point as, as, a, as a lamb led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. So I said to the people, you yeah, with your back hole. <laughs> and the Lord said to me, stay within your grace. <laughs> Don't. But seriously, lift up your hands to the Lord. Great days ahead for the city, I'm sure, I'm positive. Structure's going to be put in place. The hurt of the past needs to be dealt with. Otherwise, you're going to miss something right in front of you. It can be present, but you'll be unable to see it. And what you cannot see, you cannot enter. May the eyes of your understanding be open and be enlightened today. And may all that's in store for us in this great city, this awesome city for which we have responsibility for, to steward, to dispense grace. To everybody, may that grow and increase. I pray great grace and peace to you. I ask that the Lord will give you great courage to be obedient to the things that you know God is asking you to do. In the name of the Lord Jesus. Thank you, Father. Amen. Amen.